Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. This weekend, on a long stretch of Tucson streets, pedestrians and bikes will take over from the cars. On today's show, we'll talk about the open streets festival known as Cyclovia, and about what the passage of a clean streets initiative means for transportation in the city of Tucson. Cyclovia, an event organized by the Living Streets Alliance, isn't a race or a parade. It's a designated time and place to enjoy streets free of cars and to build community engagement and cohesion. The next Cyclovia will take place this Sunday. To preview the event and learn more about the goals behind it, we decided to do an interview on the move with Kylie Walzak of the Living Streets Alliance by following the Cyclovia route on bikes. Giddy up. All right, so we are riding the Cyclovia route with Kylie Walzak. Cyclovia, really, it's, it's become kind of a Tucson institution. How long has it been going on? So this is the 15th event, and the first event was in 2010. In 2013, we switched to a biannual calendar, so we've been doing it twice a year. We'd like to expand it even more. We have uh, hopes to do them four times a year. In other countries and places where they do these types of open streets events, they do them every week. They do them monthly if they can, um, really because what they're finding is that the more you can make this kind of event, this open streets event, part of the culture and the fabric of a community, the more it really starts to change people's behavior, perceptions, attitudes, and even travel behavior. Tucson is known as a bike-friendly city. So some might ask, why do this event? Do we really need to raise any awareness uh, of biking here? I think so. I think we were ahead of the curve in the 90s when bicycle planning was just beginning to take off and become popular in some North American cities. That's when we started mandating that striped shoulders, or some call them bike lanes, be included on every new and reconstructed road. And for a long time, that put us on the map as being bike-friendly, bike-forward thinking. But I think we saw a stall in the early 2000s. We didn't really see an increase in the diversity or the numbers of people choosing to bike. We really just saw the fearless and confident bicycle riders out there. People all over the country were thinking about why that was. Why weren't we seeing more women? Why weren't we seeing more children? And it's really because people didn't feel safe riding next to cars going 40 or 50 miles an hour. And so that's when we started thinking about different kinds of infrastructure. So bicycle boulevards that guide people parallel to where they want to go, but on residential streets. Um, we started putting in more hot crossings to get people across the busy streets. And I think we're starting to see protected bike lanes more and more in Tucson. All of these things are having the effect of uh, making bicycling appealing to more people. I think we still need to work on that in Tucson a lot. Is Cyclovia helping to raise awareness and maybe comfort levels for the general public so they can join the biking public? It is. We um, conduct surveys at every event. We ask people if attending this event changes their travel behavior. And we see um, at least self-reporting that it does make them more likely to use their bicycle for transportation when it's not Cyclovia. But I think more important than that, 
The people that you see attend Cyclovia are mostly children and families with small children. And I think that's really important. That's a big piece of the conversation around our streets that we're not having. Um, all of these decisions that we make and the compromises that we make for streets to serve motor vehicles efficiently or to change our land use to make wider streets, it's really having an effect on children's ability to, to roam, to be a part of their community, to get more physical activity, for families to spend more time together. I think that's something that we didn't necessarily think about when we started doing Cyclovia, but it's something that's become really important as we've done more of these is just having the, the ability to take back public space every once in a while and have people be able to use it safely. And I mean, that's another reason why Cyclovia does what it does. We try to move the route to different parts of town so that uh, different people, just by virtue of it having right at their front doorsteps, can participate and find out about the events. So are we crossing and going straight? We are. Okay. Yeah. So we just have a be cross. Kind of a, all right. Tough crossing. We'll be here for a while. No more than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's difficult because some people will try to stop for you. And then you have the double threat, right? If one car stops, the other car next to it might be like, why is this car stopping? And just plow through. So it's, it's scary. And I mean, the other thing you hear a lot about when serious crashes happen is they were such and such distance from a light or from a crosswalk right. but in Tucson that's really a difficult thing when it's so hot but we made it all right we just crossed uh, Euclid and Helen obviously that one will have police officers uh, <laughs> during the day that's a that's a busy crossing so since we've had that major intersection crossing let, let's talk a little bit about safety and and driving and, and riding in town, how many people are getting injured riding? And you know, have we seen with the bike boulevards a decrease in that or an increase in safety in general? Well, for bike riders, last year was a tough year, but the numbers have been steadily increasing, I think is a fair way to characterize them. But by percentage of trips made, it's actually quite, quite low, the crash rates are. So technically, <laughs> You're much safer riding a bicycle where you need to go than you are driving a car because the crash rates for people driving cars is astronomical. But now if you're a pedestrian, those rates are high and climbing nationwide. You know, a lot of communities are grappling with why. Arizona ranks in the top five most deadliest states for pedestrians. And the other four are very similar to our state. They're southern states, um, largely developed after World War II when people were beginning to own cars and use cars primarily for transportation. So um, there's a lot of interesting examination going on behind the reasons for these increases. I think we're seeing wide roads, high speeds, bigger cars, so SUVs are getting more and more popular, and also distracted driving um, all come into play here. I think we're also seeing where the gaps are in our pedestrian and bicycle networks for people. People are being uh, hit and severely injured at major intersections where crossing availability might be infrequent or lacking completely. Right. 
And I, I think, you know, engineers are very well-meaning and they will tell you if everybody would just do what they're supposed to, meaning cross where they're supposed to, everything would be fine. But we actually talk to a lot of people who tell us they don't like crossing at intersections because they feel more exposed. And crossing at some of Tucson's really big intersections is really terrifying, even if you're in a crosswalk, even if you have a light. So we're crossing 4th and Speedway right now, and we're officially on a bike boulevard. For people who don't know what all that means, what is a bike boulevard and what do all those green markings back there mean? So a bike boulevard uses paint markings, signalization, traffic calming devices and signage to prioritize bicycle travel. Um, ideally more shade and water harvesting features would be included in bike boulevards and those are things that are coming online and the Complete Streets policy is working on. So Living Streets Alliance seems to be an organization that's trying to work with the community to make the streets more livable and safer. There are other groups around the country, around the world, that are much more aggressive, street takeovers by bikes and things like that. How do, how do these two compare and why not go the more aggressive route? The critical masses were really a popular tactic in the 90s. That was before we had a lot of um, bike infrastructure available to use in the cities. We've seen a big takeoff in, in that in the, in the last 20 years. Not enough, but still some. But I think that the tactics and the messaging that Living Streets Alliance focuses on really de-emphasizes bicycles. I think um, bicycles can actually be quite divisive. It's easy for people to see the bicyclist on the road and say, well, that's not me. That will never be me. I'm not comfortable on a bike. And also that person's in my way and uh, people will d default to these, um, I don't know what tropes, I guess, that like bicyclists don't pay for the streets that they're using, that they should be taxed. Um, when really, we wanna do all that we can to encourage people to take fewer car trips <laughs> because it's not the bicycle that's in our way, it's, it's the network that we've built that is not just poorly serving bicycles or people walking, but it's actually really poorly serving everybody using a car as well. So I think once we realized that we needed to focus on the universality of mobility and transportation as a human right and a, and a need that everybody shares, it made it really easy to talk about how we're failing, we're failing all, the, all of the different modes of transportation, even people driving cars. We focus on streets as public space because they are public space. There's a lot of different ways we pay for streets, but a large way that we pay for them here in Tucson is through sales tax. So even if you don't own a car or you're not old enough or well enough to drive, you're paying for the streets every time you purchase something. And we think that the streets have not achieved their maximum potential of serving everybody well. We're about to head down here to an intersection the 6th Avenue and 7th Street intersection, which was um, redesigned in October with lighter, cheaper, quicker materials, just paint, planters, flexible posts that were installed in one day to be able to show people, to demonstrate to them what our streets are capable of. And here we are at the end of our ride at 6th and 7th mm -hmm. at Exo Coffee. Here we go. <laughs>
So that's the whole route. It's three miles, uh, but it's an easy three miles. There are no, uh, no big uh, hills. All right. Well, thanks for uh, taking us for a ride. Yeah, thanks for joining me. It was fun. That was Kylie Walzak of the Living Streets Alliance talking to us on her bike as we rode the Cyclovia route. This week, we're talking about efforts to encourage more people to safely enjoy and navigate Tucson streets in a variety of ways. In February, the Tucson City Council unanimously approved a complete streets policy. The idea is that it will guide the development of a safe, connected, and equitable transportation network that promotes greater mobility for people of all ages and abilities. We invited members of Tucson's Complete Streets Task Force into our studios to talk about what's needed. Krista Hansen of the City of Tucson Department of Transportation, Maya Ingram with the University of Arizona School of Public Health, and Jay Young of the Southwest Fair Housing Council joined us. So first of all, it's sort of an overall vision for how we design our streets. And it's basically streets that are accessible and comfortable and safe for all modes of transportation. So whether you're walking, biking, need a mobility device or driving, um, the, the street should be designed so that you can safely and easily comfortably get to places that you need to go. This is a new initiative, but can you give an example of what a complete street would be with an existing roadway that people might know in our area? There's actually one street I really like, which is 10th Avenue, because it's sort of surrounded by these sort of community pillars. There's, I think, a library and a school, and it's got a lot of different ways. It's quite a nice slow street, very neighborhood-friendly. Maybe not the best street for cars to get around on, but definitely a nice, complete neighborhood street because there's places to go and a lot of ways to get there. Jay, it looked like you wanted to to jump in on this. Well, one of the things that uh, I really appreciated uh, with Living Streets Alliance and kind of how they frame complete streets is thinking about users from age 8 to age 80. You know, you think about a child who's 8 years old or you think about somebody who uh, is 80 years old who maybe has mobility issues. You know, a complete street is a street that those ages and every age in between feels comfortable using. Somebody listening to this has got to be thinking... Okay, it makes sense to have Krista here. She's with the City of Tucson Department of Transportation. Why is Maya here from the UA School of Public Health? Why is Jay here from the Southwest Housing Fair Council? This is a transportation issue, but all of you are members of the Complete Street Task Force. From the perspective of public health, there could probably there's probably a hundred different ways that I would be at the table. One of the first ways that I got involved was around pedestrian injury because, as you know, we're a dangerous city for pedestrians. From year to year, we continue to have upwards of 20 people dying on our streets. It also, from a from a physical activity standpoint, the more that people actively move from one place to another, the better it is for their long-term health, um, for their mental health. Um, and then there's just the whole concept of a healthy city. Um, the more that we interact with each other, uh, the nicer place that we are to live, all those kinds of things. But one thing that I really wanted to emphasize, and I was thinking about coming here today, was when I read the opening preamble to the policy, which was not something that we necessarily worked on, um, there's a sentence in there that talks about transportation being a fundamental right. 
So that's really key because being able to get to the places that you work to make money so that you can live, um, being able to travel with dignity, not having to stand in a hot bus stop for hours. I mean, all those things are about how we experience life as human beings and all of that is public health, right? Public health is also really concerned about vulnerable populations. So I have a really great life. I'm not really too concerned. I really have many ways of traveling every day I can choose. A lot of people don't have that. And in public health, we're concerned about raising the playing field so that everybody has the options that they need is safe and comfortable. So therefore, it's a natural for public health to be here at the table. And as a fair housing advocate, we're really interested in this idea of affirmatively furthering fair housing, which is is really a mouthful. But um, it's really about uh, access to opportunity and who has access to opportunity in our community. So we're talking about things like healthcare, uh, access to transportation, access to good jobs, uh, access to quality, safe, affordable housing. And transportation is the generally the second largest expense for households after housing. So transportation really is a big piece of the puzzle. We're also talking about segregated housing patterns when we're talking about fair housing. And one of the things that I think is crucial about Complete Streets and, and the Complete Streets policy is its focus on equity uh, and making sure that communities that maybe have been uh, segregated by housing policies in the past or have been marginalized in other ways or you know, have uh, large percentages of vulnerable populations are really being uh, brought into the conversation and are, are having access to the uh, transportation uh, elements that they need in order to thrive in our community. We're talking with members of the Complete Streets Task Force Krista Hansen with the City of Tucson Department of Transportation, Maya Ingram with the University of Arizona School of Public Health, and Jay Young with the Southwest Fair Housing Council. Okay, let's get to some brass tacks here. What does this package really mean? What can people expect to see? When they can they expect to see the changes? Um, at least on the city side of things, the timeline is pretty quick in terms of developing a plan for new design guidelines. So those will that'll change how our internal design guidelines that our engineers use and our project managers use. It also involves modifying our uh, different plans and zoning um, guidelines and different things. And we're, we're hiring a new project manager who's a Complete Streets project manager. So we're dedicating an entire position to this um, to oversee it. and. Um, and it's also involving getting the community and technical advisory group together and organized to be able to give actual input on this stuff. So it's moving relatively quickly in the in, in the scheme for, for us. Um, we've set a, a goal of um, September to have the new design guidelines out. And it's already, I think, changed the way that internally that we're talking about our streets and I think just that it's it's completely part of the conversation with, with all staff. And so already now, if projects are already underway and in design, the conversation is, okay, how can we bring in Complete Street elements where we can, even if it's not officially a Complete Streets project? Uh, you mentioned it earlier, Krista. It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all policy. I think that's really important to remember. And in a lot of the conversations that we've had with the community uh, and stakeholders, uh, that's really been brought up. You know, there are ways to have exceptions to the policy. So, you know, just the last meeting that we had, we were talking about what suits downtown might not suit 
the east side might not fit, the foothills might not fit the south side, but there are all of these different elements and it's kind of like, you know, there's, there's a menu. So for certain areas, you might have certain elements of complete streets, whereas in another place you might, you might not have them or you might have others. So, you know, I think the idea that it's not one size fits all and it's not the city coming in and dictating that, you know, every street is gonna be exactly like this is a really important thing to remember. Have other cities adopted similar complete streets programs, and do we have any data on how it worked for them? Well, I've actually been doing a lot of reading about that lately, and there are, and maybe you know the percentage, Krista, of cities, but it's quite a number of municipalities of various sizes that have a complete streets policy now. It actually started in the 70s and then really took off in the 90s. Um, but what that means, when where the rubber hits the road, um, that's not as clear, and collecting outcomes around it is not as clear. So there are a lot of studies sort of looking at housing prices, which is has an up and a down, and looking at injuries for certain roadways. But looking at the city comprehensively, is there's I think there's still a lot of work to be done um, in that area around complete streets. And what really interests me is that it was only a couple of years ago that the National Complete Streets Coalition added equity as part of the standards for a good complete streets policy. So we're really one of the first to really embrace that concept. So what does it mean to measure that? And I think for the short term, that's really us having a good um, understanding of what we mean by equity and then how do we measure it? How do we make sure that every community feels involved in the decisions about how their community changes? I mean, those are things that, you know, I think will have a lot to do with the well-being of our community that we can measure now and going forward. So when you say equity, what are we looking at or what do we think we're looking at? Right. And I think there's a many different definitions. But in um, the work that I was doing, we really said, well, it's not about equality, right? It's not making sure that every ward gets exactly the same thing. It's making sure that um, everybody has is brought up to a same level and has this is brought up to a, 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 the same opportunity. So I think, as Jay mentioned, there's a lot of parts of Tucson that have been left out of decisions and, and historical processes. So really, it's an opportunity to go to them and help them make decisions about how they'd like to improve their community. Gentrification is always a concern when you start making places more pleasant. So what's a way to really build on community strengths um, and make communities better without putting them in danger of not being able to live there anymore and things like that? You know, a lot of people don't understand just how much the federal government, state government, local governments, uh, the private sector intentionally segregated people based on race and ethnicity in this country. And, you know, if you look at any community in this country, Tucson included, you'll still see that we are very segregated in where we live by race and ethnicity. Um, and, you know, part of what went along with that is, you know, after World War II, when the federal government really got involved in housing policy, one of the things they did is they uh, facilitated the construction of suburbs and in order for people to get back and forth to the suburbs, we spent uh, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars on uh, interstate highways to get to and from those suburbs. And uh, the federal government restricted who could get loans for those houses. And so people of color, minorities, were not able to get mortgages to buy those homes. So there are communities that have been left out of the planning process, that have been left out of really the, the economic life of the community. So, you know, I think that this is an opportunity really to look at how we have developed over the years and to think about maybe doing it a little bit differently and uh, dealing with some of those inequities that were conscious and intentional, um, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. One thing to add of equity sort of under the safety lens and thinking about um, people who have 
to maybe walk or bike or take transit out of necessity. Maybe they lack access to a car. And so therefore they have oftentimes more exposure on the streets. And um, so looking at prioritizing areas where we see high usage of transit and walking rates um, will also oftentimes overlay with areas of need for other equity reasons. And so, you know, across the country, we've seen that that people living in poor areas are dying at higher rates as pedestrians. So that's another lens of prioritizing those improvements. The big question that always comes up in all of these things is funding. Does Prop 407 that the voters passed that gives some money to parks and things like that help out with this? Or where does the funding for this come from? Well, with Prop 407 specifically, there is funding for biking and walking projects. So that will include, you know, bike boulevards, protected bike lanes, pedestrian safety and walkability improvements. So those all definitely line up with the complete streets, you know, sort of design and guidelines. And also the city's currently working on a mobility master plan to identify projects like this, which will have a whole complete streets lens on it. Um, And I think it's also somewhat of a misconception that complete streets projects cost so much more than other projects. I mean, if you look at the cost of widening roads is massive compared to, you know, improving the existing road, adding sidewalks or facilities or different things like that. I mean, I know there's been a number of studies, Maya, you may know more of of sort of the costs. Well, I was just going to say, you know, to take a step back, I've served on the Pedestrian Advisory Committee for the city for the last five years. And what I notice is that it's really just about how we prioritize things as a city. And I'm so excited that the city put 407 out and that the voters voted on it. And it really said, this is what we care about. So I think there's only so much money, but we put it about where we want to. And we certainly have had money for roads and, you know, for big wide roads. And now we have money for this. So I feel like we'll find the money. At the last task force meeting, what I heard a lot of is how does the rubber meet the road? What is the cost going to be? You know, is there going to be clarity about how this policy is implemented? And I think another piece for me um, is leading up to the passage of the Complete Streets policy, there was a task force and invitations sent out, you know, uh, far and wide throughout the community to try and get as much, as many voices to the table as possible. But, you know, now going forward, this task force is morphing and is really going to be uh, helping to determine how the rubber meets the road and how this policy uh, is enacted. So, you know, it's not like the the participation stops now. It's going to continue. It's just kind of changing its form. So, you know, again, I think that the idea of the, the clarity, how is this actually going to manifest itself in, in the community and in new developments and, you know, in future transportation projects. Um, you know, we as a community still have a lot of work to do, I think, to, to figure out what it, what it actually looks like and how it fits Tucson uh, in, in a way that suits everybody. All right. Well, thank you so much to all three of you for sitting down with us. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you. you. Those were three members of Tucson's Complete Streets Task Force. And that's the buzz for this week. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Special thanks to Steve Riggs and Nick Smallwood for helping record our bike interview. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.